for this morning is Psalm 17. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The title of this psalm tells us that it's a prayer of David. And that's a very appropriate title. For the psalm is throughout, first of all, a prayer. There are many psalms that contain prayers, but this psalm is entirely prayer. It is, in addition, a very personal prayer. Throughout the psalm, David prays in the first person singular, that is, for himself, with only one exception to that, and that's found in verse 11, where he says, they have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth. The prayer that David makes here in this psalm consists primarily of three petitions. The first of those petitions is found in verse 2. Let my vindication come from your presence. The second of those petitions is found in verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. And the third of those petitions is found in verse 13. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. Now this prayer that David makes here, though it is a prayer of petition, is also a prayer of confidence. The prayer is characterized by David's confidence that the Lord will hear him and that the Lord will grant to him what he is asking. You find many expressions of confidence in the psalm. For example, in verse 3, you have tried me and have found nothing. Or in verse 6, I have called upon you for you will hear me, O God. And again in verse 15, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. In this confidence that David expresses in the psalm, David is expressing something very similar to what we find in Psalm 16, another psalm that's characterized throughout by a tone of confidence. And in fact, the confidence of the last verse of this psalm is very similar to the confidence expressed in the last verse of Psalm 16. Here he says, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. And in verse 11 of Psalm 16, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David looks in both of these psalms to the glory of heaven and to the final rest of God's pilgrims. There's one more characteristic that I want to call to your attention here about Psalm 17, and that is that the usual structure of parallelism that you find in the psalms is in this psalm rather frequently broken up and it's broken up by very long sentences that you find in several places. For example, if you look at verse 4, you will see a long sentence. Concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, 
I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Also in verse 7, Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand, O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. And again at the end of verse 13 and into verse 14, Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword, with your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. So the usual structure of parallelism is not as consistent in this psalm as it is in many other psalms. Let's consider this psalm under the theme praying for vindication, preservation, and deliverance. Praying for vindication, preservation, and deliverance. First of all, the prayer for vindication, verses 1 through 5. Secondly, the prayer for preservation, verses 6 through 12. And finally, the prayer for deliverance, verses 13 to 15. David begins this psalm, as he begins many others of his psalms, with a request to be heard. In fact, that request here in Psalm 17 is repeated three times. We have first, hear, a just cause, O Lord, then attend to my cry, and finally, give ear to my prayer. But what's unique about this particular request to be heard is that David, in making this request, appeals especially to the righteousness of his cause. That's what distinguishes this request from David's other requests to be heard. Hear a just cause, O Lord. David is having trouble with enemies, and we'll talk more about that when we, when we get further on in the psalm. David is having trouble with enemies, and he's coming to God to present his cause to God, and he is saying to God in the presentation of that cause to him, my cause is the righteous cause. My enemies are in error. I am not. David pleads emphatically his own righteousness. Not only does he plead that righteousness before God, but he insists that in presenting that cause as a righteous cause before God, he is not concealing anything from God. That is, he's not trying to lie to God about the circumstances in which he finds himself. He's not trying to cover up certain circumstances which may reflect badly on himself. He is opening his cause to God fully and honestly, and in this honest opening of his cause before God, he nevertheless says, my cause is righteous here, a just cause and asks on the basis of the righteousness of his cause then that God vindicate him. Let my vindication come from your presence. That is, let me hear your sentence on me and let that sentence be a sentence of righteousness rather than a sentence of condemnation. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. That is, look at me. Look at the circumstances in which I find myself. Look at all that's gone on in here. 
And what you will see when you look at these circumstances, when you look at me, is uprightness. David even goes on in verse 3 to say, God himself knows all that has happened in these circumstances. You have tested my heart. That is, you've seen to my innermost being. It's not just that you've seen what goes on outwardly, but you've seen to my innermost being, my desires, my motives, my thoughts. You visited me in the night, the time of contemplation and meditation when a man opens himself to God's examination and prays that God will search him and know him. You visited me at night. You tried me, he says, and you have found nothing. There is no unrighteousness in me. And there is no unrighteousness in me because, finally, at the end of verse 3, I have purpose that my mouth shall not transgress. When these enemies first began to attack me, then I resolved before your face that I would not let my mouth sin, that I would speak no evil words, that I would not speak rashly, that I would not unjustly condemn them, nor unjustly plead my cause before you. I resolved my mouth would not transgress. And concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. I have not walked the way that my enemies have walked. I have not done the things that they have done. I have walked in paths of righteousness. So David asserts very strongly in these first verses of the psalm his own righteousness. In fact, he asserts that righteousness so strongly that some commentators have condemned him for it and have said that David is really acting here like the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican who said, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men. That is not the case, people of God. When David here asserts his own righteousness before the face of God, he asserts that righteousness on the basis of a true and honest examination of his own behavior. In fact, on the basis of an examination that has taken place under the eye of God himself. You, he says, have searched me. You visited me at night. You tested me and found nothing. He has submitted himself, therefore, to God's own searching, to God's own examination, to God's own judgment. And under that searching eye of the omnipotent God, he still asserts his own righteousness. This is not self-righteousness. This is righteousness which has been given to him as a gift of God. Notice what he says in verse 4 concerning the works of men by the word of your lips. I have kept myself from the paths of the destroyer by the word of your lips, not by my own strength, not by my own abilities, but by my careful adherence to examination of and prayers about your word. He has relied on God's word 
And he continues to rely on God. Verse 5, uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. In other words, David is saying here, I am righteous. I assert my righteousness before the throne of judgment, before God himself. But I am righteous because of your work in me. And when you examine me, you are really examining what you have done. You are testing your own work. And you are finding your work to be righteous. It's a very striking thing, people of God, and something I think that we don't often do in our own defense. But Calvin says in application of this passage that we should learn to labor in all our temptations and in all the struggles which we have against our enemies to be blameless. So that when we present our cause before God and ask for his help against our enemies, we do not need first to confess our own sins and ask forgiveness for them but can rather say before the face of God, as David said here, Hear a just cause, O Lord. My mouth has not transgressed. I have kept myself from the paths of the destroyer. Another commentator has this to say, The modern type of religion which recoils from such professions and contents itself with always confessing sins which it has given up hope of overcoming, would be all the better for listening to the psalmist and aiming a little more vigorously and hopefully at being able to say, I know nothing against myself. It's not our work. It's the work of God. And we seek the work of God in us to perfect in us that righteousness that he has promised us in Jesus Christ. We should also understand, people of God, that this is the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry, and perhaps especially at the time of his trials before Pontius Pilate and the Jewish Sanhedrin. Remember, people of God, that when he stood before Pontius Pilate, the representative of God, appointed by the world power, of course, but nevertheless, the representative of God, he heard from the mouth of Pilate, I have found no fault in this man. Pontius Pilate, willing to find fault, in fact, we might say even eager to find fault so that he could please the Jews, was unable to find fault and confess before the multitude who had come to demand Jesus' crucifixion that he could find no fault in him. Let my vindication come from your presence, was Jesus' cry, and the answer to that cry was in the mouth of Pontius Pilate, I have found no fault in this man. When he stood before the Sanhedrin, they also tried to find fault with him. 
They sought all kinds of accusations against him and hired, even hired false witnesses, but nothing could be made to stick. And finally, they condemned him merely because he spoke the truth in answer to the high priest's questions, tell me whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Again, no fault could be found in him. However, people of God, he was, by both the Sanhedrin and by Pontius Pilate, unjustly condemned. And he received their sentences as sentences from his God, whose representatives they were. And he received those sentences as from God, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people which he bore. He accepted their condemnation of him as a just condemnation of the sins of his people. And he bore the suffering the consequences of those sins for them. But remember also, people of God, that God answered his prayer, hear a just cause, O Lord, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand. Then God declared his righteousness. Then God declared his vindication and his justification. Then God confirmed his own words spoken on the cross, it is finished. God said, indeed, it is finished, and I now declare you righteous. Christ prayed and called upon God for a sentence of righteousness, and God answered his prayer fully and completely when he raised him from the dead. It is only in our Lord Jesus Christ, people of God, that we can have that kind of righteousness before God. First of all, that means that when we have sinned, also in these struggles against our enemies, we must come before God to claim the righteousness of Christ as ours and to plead forgiveness on the basis of that righteousness. It is in Christ that God beholds us as he once beheld Israel and says, I have seen no iniquity in Jacob. I have seen no iniquity in Jacob. And it is in Christ and by faithful dependence on our Lord Jesus Christ that we receive that righteousness in ourselves which enables us to obey the commandments, to keep from the paths of the destroyers, and to guard our tongues from all evil. It is not self-righteousness that we plead. It is never our own righteousness that we plead before the face of God, but it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, first of all obtained for us as a covering for our sins, and then infused into us by the work of His Spirit, so that it is possible for us to obey. We ought, as I read from that commentator a little while ago, a little more vigorously and hopefully to aim at being able to say, I know nothing against myself.
That brings us to the second petition, which is found in verses 6 to 12. This is the petition for preservation. And it is based on the plea for vindication found in the first six verses. That is, David cannot ask God to preserve him unless God will first justify him. Justification is always the root of all the blessings that God gives us. We cannot receive any good from him except we first be justified in his sight. So he asks for justification first, for vindication first, and then asks for preservation. Now David again starts this section of the psalm by asking that God will hear him. Verse 6, incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Here he expresses his confidence that God will hear him. I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. The next thing that David does in this part of the psalm is ask for God's loving kindness. He needs not only justice from God, but he also needs loving kindness. The vindication of his cause does not necessarily imply that God will respond to this second petition merely with justice. But God will come also in his loving kindness to David to preserve him from his enemies. The translation here has show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. A better translation might be distinguish your loving kindness. That is, make it stand out. Do something extraordinary for me in your loving kindness. In the second place, David says that he wants that loving kindness to come from God's right hand. God's right hand is the place of his favor. It's the place at which our Lord Jesus Christ sat down when he was exalted to heavenly glory. And it's the place also at which the sheep stand in the judgment. The sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. Notice also that David names God here in the last part of this verse. He refers to God's works in the past of saving those who trust in him, but he does not simply refer to those works, but he refers to God as the one who has done them. That is, he gives this description of God as a description of his character. Oh, you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. That is, he's not just saying then, do what you've done in the past for all those who trust in you. But he's saying, act according to your character. I know it belongs to your character to save those who trust in you. Now I come to you asking that you will save me consistently 
with how you have always acted in the past. You are one who delights in salvation. It's in verse 8 then that he gets to the heart of the matter. Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me under the shadow of your wings. He wants God's loving kindness to be shown to him in preservation. Preserve me from my enemies. David uses two figures of speech there to emphasize this idea of preservation. The first is the protection that a man gives to his own eyes. And that protection is, of course, automatic and very careful and diligent. When anything comes near our eyes, our eyes automatically close to protect them. And we are inclined, of course, to protect our eyes almost before any other parts of our bodies. We put up our hands, we throw up our arms, we even get down on our faces on the ground in order to protect our eyes. We're vigilant, diligent, careful about our eyesight. David says here to God, be as vigilant, as careful, as diligent in protecting me from my enemies as a man is in protecting his eyes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. The second figure that David uses is the figure of a bird who gathers her young ones under her, her wings to protect them from predators or perhaps from a storm. That figure of speech emphasizes especially tenderness and love. David says, show me your love and your tenderness towards me by protecting me from my enemies. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. The need for this preservation is talked about in verse 9, from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. Here we come finally to the circumstances which gave occasion for this psalm. The wicked are oppressing him. They are deadly enemies, and the literal Hebrew there is they are enemies in soul, which emphasizes both the sincerity and the passion of their hatred of David. They do sincerely and passionately hate him, and these enemies surround him. That is, they are on every side of him, so that there is, from a human perspective, no way of escape. Now, we begin to look at verses 10 to 12. But before we begin to look at those verses, I think we need to see that those three verses stand in relation both to the request for preservation and to the request for deliverance which follows them. We're considering them in connection with the request for preservation, but they really belong also with the request for deliverance. How can we see that? Well, if you look at verse 9, you see that David says there, from the wicked who oppress me, and that's in the plural, from my deadly enemies, again plural, who surround me. And he then goes on to refer by the pronoun at the beginning of verse 1 to those enemies in the plural. They have closed up their fat hearts with their mouths. They speak proudly. 
Now, if you go down to verse 13 for just a minute, you will see that David says there, Arise, O Lord, confront him, singular, cast him down, deliver my life from the wicked, singular this time, deliver my life from the wicked man with your sword. And that him of verse 13 refers to verse 12, where David uses the word lion, in the singular, as a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a young lion lurking in secret places. So if we were to represent this psalm graphically, what we would do is put a large box across the top of the page that had prayer for vindication in it. Verses 1 to 5. Underneath that would be three other boxes. First of all, on the left-hand side, a box for the prayer for preservation. On the right-hand side, a prayer for deliverance. And sandwiched between those two prayers, this description of his enemies in verses 10 to 12, and of what his enemies are doing to him. Now what does David say about his enemies and what they're doing? Well, first of all, he says they have closed up their fat hearts. You'll notice that the word hearts is in italics and therefore is not found in the Hebrew. They have closed up their fat, is the literal translation of the Hebrew. They have closed up their fat. The King James renders it, they are enclosed in their own fat. I think the idea of that statement is, first of all, that they are prosperous. The idea of fact in the scriptures is often the idea of prosperity. They are prosperous. But the idea that David is getting at by the expression, they have closed up their fat, or they are enclosed in their own fat, is that they are complacent in that prosperity. They're satisfied with that prosperity. They love that prosperity. And their love of that prosperity and their complacence in that prosperity leads them to speak proudly. With their mouth, they speak proudly. They're contemptuous of the righteous and of the poor. They are people who are self-satisfied and are really closed against compassion towards the poor and the righteous. Asaph has a very similar description of wicked men, but much more detailed in Psalm 73. And we should turn there to look at that, because the same two ideas appear in great prominence there in those verses, verses 3 to 9. For I was envious of the boastful, that's their pride, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. There's their prosperity again, and of course their complacence in it. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. 
So David is characterizing them then as men who are prosperous, complacent, and proud. They are men who may well boast that they are the sort who live and let live. And it may well be true that they live and let live until the testimony of the lives and words of the righteous speaks against their complacence and pride. And that's the problem that David has with these men. They're prosperous, they're complacent, they're proud, they're satisfied to rest on their laurels so long as no accusing voice says to them, that's not the kind of lifestyle you ought to be living. And that testimony may come to them not simply by the words of the righteous, but also by their behavior. Why did Cain hate Abel? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. We have to recognize that, people of God, the hatred of the wicked arises not from the fact that we are sinners. They don't mind that fact. They, their hatred arises from the fact that we are righteous. And it may well be that the more that righteousness becomes evident to them, the more their hatred will be roused against us. God tells us to respond to the persecution of the wicked with righteousness, with righteous behavior and righteous testimony. We have to recognize that that response that God requires of us may well arouse their hatred even further. So, David says, they have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a young lion lurking in secret places. They are set on their opposition to him. They want nothing other than his destruction. That brings us then to the final point, the prayer for deliverance in verses 13 and 15. David does not begin here with a request to be heard as he began with the other two sections of the psalm. He jumps right into the middle of things, saying, Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down. That word arise means awake. Wake up from your sleep. You have been inactive. In my behalf, it is time now for you to come to my deliverance. Confront him means stand in front of him, stand in his way. Do not let him draw near to me. And the word cast him down is especially interesting because what it really means is cause him to bow. Cause him to bow. That is, bring him to his knees, humble himself, humble him before you, Make him unable to hurt me, to injure me, 
because he has to acknowledge your superior power. And in that way, in that way of confronting and casting his, down, his enemies down, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. His deliverance comes through the casting down of the wicked. That's another thing we have to recognize, people of God, because people often argue that we should not pray against our enemies. Well, the fact of the matter is that whenever we pray for deliverance, we are praying against our enemies. We can't escape it. When we ask God to save us from those who oppress us, we are asking God to do something to those enemies which will not be good for them. Our deliverance comes ultimately through their destruction. But note too about that prayer for deliverance that it is an addition to the prayer for preservation. He prays for preservation, yes. That is, keep me while these troubles last. But that's not enough. He wants to be delivered from the troubles as well. Now again, in verse 14, David talks about these wicked men and what they're like. First of all, notice the emphasis on the fact that they are men. With your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world. Twice repeating the same word. They are men. They are not gods. Notice in the second place that he calls them men of the world. They are indeed men of the world. They are men who belong here. They are men who have their portion in this life, as he goes on to say, that is, all their ambitions, all their desires, all their efforts, all their pleasures are found here. And in saying that their portion is in this life, David uses the very same word that he used in Psalm 16 when he said, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance. You are the portion of my inheritance. But of these wicked men, he says, their portion is in this life. Their vision, their desires, their loves are all confined to the things that belong to this life and to this world. God fills their bellies with his hidden treasures. Their gods are their bellies. And God gives them hidden treasures, that is, he gives them food to satisfy them, and he gives them abundance of earthly things. He fills their gods, their bellies, with his hidden treasures, and they're satisfied. It's enough for them. They are satisfied with children, and they are satisfied if they can leave the rest of their possessions for their babes. Their vision does not extend beyond that. All their hopes are confined to the things they can see and touch and have with their hands here in the world. David contrasts himself with them in verse 15. As for me, 
he says, deliberately emphasizing that he is different. I will see your face in righteousness. Now what we want to see about that statement in verse 15 is that David, in that statement, repeats three words that he used in verses 1 and 2. The first of the words is the word see, which you find in verse 2 when he says, let your eyes look on the things that are upright. Let your eyes behold the things that are upright, might be a better translation, and here, as for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. The second word that he repeats is the word face. That word is found in verse 2, the first part, let my vindication come from your presence or from your face. Let my vindication come from your face. Let your eyes behold the things that are upright. Then as for me, I will behold your face. So David in verses 1 and 2 imagines himself, places himself before the face of God and asks that God behold him. Here he says, I will behold you. I will behold your face. The third word that David repeats here is the word righteousness. That word is found in the first line of the psalm, hear a just cause, or better, hear righteousness, O Lord. Hear righteousness, O Lord. And then finally at the end of the psalm, I will see your face in righteousness. So David is confidently expressing his opinion that the Lord will hear the petition he has made to him at the beginning of the psalm. Let my vindication come from your presence. I know it will. I will see your face in righteousness. I have pleaded a righteous cause before you. I know I will stand before you and see your face shining upon me because of that righteousness. Notice also that in the second part of the verse, David again deliberately contrasts himself with the wicked by using again that word satisfied. What does he say about them in verse 14? They are satisfied with children. What does he say about himself in verse 15? I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. They are satisfied with the things of this world. He passes right over them as if they are of no importance at all. And he says, I will be satisfied when I awake with your likeness. That's where my longings lie. That's where my desires go. That's what will fill me to satiety. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Two things will satisfy him. First, resurrection. When I awake. 
When we die, people of God, our souls go to heaven and our bodies go to the sleep of the grave. We fall asleep in Jesus, as the New Testament puts it. We fall asleep. We will be satisfied when we awake. That is, when our bodies awake from the dead at the sound of the last trump and are transformed to be like the glorious body of Christ. And the other thing that belongs to that satisfaction is that we are in the likeness of God that is transformed to be completely in his image, in the image of righteousness and holiness. We will be satisfied when our righteousness before the face of God is perfect and complete. John says in the third chapter of his first epistle this. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Having heard the word of God, let us say amen.